Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Paul Mumaw. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. And if you've got a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it. Uh, turn to the Old Testament, the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37. And if you brought a copy of the story uh, and you're following along in it instead, uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 3 together uh, out of the story today. If, if you're new, uh, we have this challenge here at Genesis this year where we're reading through the Bible together in 2013. And we're using a book called The Story uh, to help us uh, as a resource as we read together. Now, The story isn't meant to replace your Bible, but what the story does for us, again, it is a resource to kind of help us get a better idea of the story that God is telling uh, in the scriptures. And and so with with scriptures uh, arranged chronologically, I think you'll find as you read it that the story, again, it just helps uh, and get us um, getting a better glance at the big picture uh, that God is telling uh, in the scriptures. And so uh, we're reading it together. We're preaching through the story here on Sunday mornings, and many of our connection groups are discussing it together uh, throughout the weeks. Um, I hope that you'll read chapter 4 in preparation for next Sunday, as next week we'll be looking a little bit at, uh, at the beginning of, or at the story of Moses and his time in Egypt. Um, if you're following along with your own Bible instead, I, I think you'll find there's a, a guide in your worship program that'll help you with each chapter uh, that you're supposed to read uh, for every particular week. But hopefully you had a chance to read up through or into uh, chapter three today as we're looking at the story of Joseph. Uh, now, Joseph's story uh, begins in Genesis, Genesis 37 uh, to be exact, and then runs through the end of the book of Genesis. And what I want you to see today is this as we look at the life, as we look at the story of Joseph, that his story, his life begins with a dream, but it's really followed by a number of um, occasions of letdown uh, and disappointment. And at least from our perspective, you could say frustration, that, that life really isn't going as at least we would direct it uh, if we were to compare it to our own everyday lives. Um, how, how many of you remember playing the very first uh, Super Mario Brothers game uh, that came out? Just kind of looking back a little bit, a little nostalgia here. Now I'm talking about on the original Nintendo. All right, this is, this is Mar- Super Mario Brothers that came packaged with a second game, you know, Duck Hunt. Right? You remember the dog? You can hear the dog laughing right now, that little giggle, and it came with the plastic gun. And uh, it, I, I think we all know this, that if the game wasn't working right, you take it out and you blow in it, you know, get some of the dust off of the, the cartridge, and then you play this great game. Well, Super Mario Brothers had a really basic story. Uh, defeat the enemy and rescue the princess, right? I mean, that's how the game went. And so just pretty straightforward. And if you beat one level, uh, you move on to the next level. Uh, It was a game that just sort of moved from left to right. And so the screen moved along with you. You couldn't turn around and go back in the other direction. Uh, And so again, just very straightforward. And if you died or if you lost all three of your guys... You just start over. You, you go all the way back to the very beginning. Well, pretty soon, uh, these more advanced games came along. They were much more open-ended games in which you could create a whole experience or like an alternate reality or something. You, you could create your hero and pick certain attributes. Uh, you could make decisions for them. You could decide whether you wanted to be on the good side or if you wanted to be on the evil side. And so if you think about it, even in games like SimCity, 
or games like Civilization, you create an entire society. Or with popular sports games, one of my favorite, Madden Football. You know, even with something like Madden Football, you can run your favorite franchise. You can draft all of your own players, sign free agents, fire the coach, and even raise the price of popcorn, you know, at the stadium. And so it's made its design to feel lifelike. That that is until something happens that you don't like. You know, it's not going your way. And so if another civilization declares war on you or if your first round draft pick turns out to be a bust or, well, what you do is you just start over or you go back to your last save or something. I mean, you get to control the direction of the game. But, of course, we know that life, well, isn't like that. All right, completely at least. I mean, you can't just start over. I mean, you can't just choose a a new beginning or a new family or a first marriage over again. I mean, you... You can prepare yourselves all that you want. I mean, we can make certain decisions that have some effect on where we go from here. But there are plenty of things that happen in life over which you and I have zero control, right? I mean, remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books? Uh, Those were really popular when I was a kid. I mean, the, the story went, I mean, you'd come to a fork in the road and you get to choose where to go from here. And if you choose one path, you could see how the story ended. If you didn't like the way that story ended, just kind of go back to that same point and, and choose another direction. But as adults, we know that in large part, life doesn't work like that. I mean, life's not a choose your own adventure uh, kind of a book. Consider this, think about it like this. Um, all of us, start off thinking that our life or our story will go in one particular direction. I mean, but with that, would you or could you say honestly that your life has gone exactly as you would have planned? I mean, think about it for a moment. I mean, has life gone exactly the way that you thought? You know, maybe some of the dreams that you had as a kid or as a teen or as a college student or something. I mean, dreams for your career. Uh, dreams for your marriage, uh, dreams for uh, your family or something. Has life gone exactly the way that you planned? Maybe. I mean, maybe for some of you, you'd say, yeah, it's gone really well or it's gone better than anything I would have ever dreamt for myself. But I just think for most people, I mean, we hope for certain things in life. We kind of see a future We see some things happening in a relationship or in a family or with a career or with some personal goals or something, but usually somewhere along the way with some aspect of our life, it always ends up going in a different direction than we would have ever planned. And that's what we see happening in the life of Joseph. And that's who we're looking at today. Now, this is Old Testament Joseph, not to be confused with Jesus' dad. Uh, We're not going to meet him until the New Testament. And so we've got Old Testament Joseph here, the son of Jacob. Now, Jacob had another name in the scriptures. His name was also Israel. And so Joseph is the grandson of Isaac and the great-grandson of Abraham, who we talked about last week. And we pick it up in Genesis 37, where Joseph is a teenager. Uh, He's got 10 older brothers and one younger brother, but his father, Jacob, loves Joseph the most. All right, and he does nothing to hide this. And on one occasion, he gives Joseph this fancy jacket. Now, even if you're new to church or if this is the first time you've ever heard this story before, there's a really good chance you've heard of the musical, you know, about Joseph and about his colorful coat. Well, this is that guy. And this coat that he gets from his dad isn't just any sort of a coat. I mean, this coat had a lot of symbolism. And for the brothers looking at Joseph receiving such a gift, you know, they know that Joseph or Jacob is saying to the rest of the boys, hey, I just need you to know that Joseph is my favorite. 
all right, of all of my sons, of all of my children, uh, Joseph is the one that I love the most. And, and he's also saying to the other boys that Joseph is going to get the very best of the inheritance. I mean, it kind of looked like this. I mean, suppose that you had 12 sons, all right, and it's Christmas morning and you're handing out your gifts and you give one of your kids an iPad and the rest of them like Chia Pets or something, all right? I mean, you can see how a gift like that is going to sort of be problematic uh, for the relationship, but that's what happens. And so in Genesis 37, verse 4, we just kind of get an idea of what's going on in the home. It says, when his brothers, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. This is dysfunction. And some of you know the pain, you know, that dysfunction like this can bring to a home. Because maybe you grew up in a home like this. I mean, you you didn't get to choose your own adventure in life because you didn't get to choose your family. And so maybe for you, maybe there was a favorite in your house, but it wasn't you. Or instead of a house filled with love, your house was filled with hate and criticism and negativity, maybe abuse. Joseph came from a very dysfunctional home, and dysfunctional homes have a way of crippling dreams. But Joseph doesn't help matters, and and here's what happens. One day he's got this dream. He has this dream where the rest of his brothers are bowing down to him, worshiping him like he's some sort of king or something. And and if you're a sibling, like especially a younger sibling, you might want to just kind of take note here that if you have a dream like that, just kind of keep that dream to yourself, all right? I mean, that's not something that you want to share uh, with the rest of your siblings, but Joseph does it. Instead of keeping it to himself, he shares it with the rest of his brothers, and they hated him even more. And one day Jacob, again, this is the father, sends Joseph out into the fields where the rest of the brothers are hard at work. Now, I just think it's kind of interesting because he's got that silly coat on, all right? And they see him coming. And and as I was studying this past week, too, I found that there are scholars that believe that it wasn't so much a colorful coat as it was in the design and what the design of the coat symbolized. It was probably a long-sleeved robe and a very long flowing robe, which at that time in this context symbolized management versus labor. And, And so it's no coincidence that Joseph is at home while the rest of his brothers are out working hard in the fields. I mean, favoritism is all over this. But he heads out to them. He's got the coat on. They see him coming, and look what they're saying to each other in Genesis 37, picking it up in verse 19. They say, hey, here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Well, for the next few verses, there's this conversation that takes place between the brothers about what they're going to do to Joseph. And finally, one of the older brothers, Judah, speaks up in verse 26. says, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother and our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. And so Judah is at least somewhat sympathetic to his brother, and he suggests that rather than kill Joseph, they sell him into slavery instead. And that's exactly what they do. They sold their brother into slavery. They put him in this caravan that was heading towards Egypt. And so here's Joseph at the age of 17 now as a slave, and he's on his way to a foreign land from Canaan to this foreign land in Egypt. And when he arrives there, he's sold as a slave to one of the Pharaoh's officials, a guy by the name of Potiphar. Now Potiphar's role, his responsibility was that he was captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. Now in the meantime, that's Egypt, back to Canaan, 
the brothers have to come up with some sort of alibi. I mean, they've, they've got a story to tell to make sense of what's happened to their brother. And so they told their dad that he was killed by a wild animal. They, they, they took his robe. I'm sure they enjoyed tearing it to shreds and they put all of this blood all over it. And the Bible says that when the dad, when Jacob heard the news that he was, he was crushed. Now, back to Egypt. Joseph's in Egypt. He's a slave to Potiphar. And Potiphar quickly observes something in Joseph. Uh, He sees some extraordinary gifts and abilities and potential in Joseph. And so it it doesn't take long before Joseph has taken off like household cleaning responsibilities and and he's put in charge of all of Potiphar's business. In fact, the Bible says that with Joseph in charge, Potiphar didn't concern himself with anything. Kind of thing that slave and going a lot goes to Joseph one day and says, hey, I want you to come to bed with me. And, and that's probably a PG translation of this particular passage. I'm sure it was a little more direct, a little more crass than that. But, but notice how Joseph responds in chapter 39, verse 9. He says, you know what? No one is greater in this house than I am. My master, who's being his wife, But there's also something even more important here that we recognize and understand that Joseph had a heavenly master who in many ways dictated so many things about his life on earth. And Joseph says, how could I sin against my God? And then the Bible says that even though Joseph saw and spoke to this woman every day after this, he avoided her as much as he could and each day refused to go to bed with her. And so let's just stop there for a second and just ask, I mean, what, what do we learn about Joseph up to this point in his life? Well, I think we see that his life is filled with disappointment. Please don't overlook that. I mean, he had a dream, now he's a slave, but lots of disappointment, lots of frustration, lots of questions. But just notice how in the middle of the disappointment he's faithful. He's still faithful. And, and sadly enough, I just think that what happens, what what so often happens to so many of us when disappointment overwhelms us is that we have this way of allowing our disappointment to make way for disobedience. We'll allow our disappointment to give way for disobedience. I mean, disappointment, more often than we realize, has a way of justifying our disobedience. And so we'll just rationalize our actions. You know, we'll rationalize them by saying, you know what, life isn't going the way that I planned, and so I'm going to take charge once and for all. Or I've been doing all of the giving in this relationship, and so it's about time I start doing some of the taking for myself, or I I do something for myself. It just, disappointment has a way, or at least makes way, for disobedience. And I, I just think this is especially true when it comes to sexual sin. I mean, don't miss the temptation that Joseph is up against here. I mean, it's no coincidence. I mean, he's a young man, and just because it was a long time ago doesn't mean that he doesn't have some of the physical needs uh, that we all have. And I I just think that's where temptation lies for so many today. I mean, I know we have a lot of single people here. And for some of you, uh, you thought that by now you certainly would have found someone, someone to spend your life with. And maybe you've tried to do it God's way for a really long time and you've been trying to live according to His standards. But just, but if, but if you're absolutely honest with yourself, I mean, the longer He takes, the more tempting it becomes to lower your standards. And you can see how quickly disappointment can give way to things like disobedience. 
Uh, There was a survey that came out recently, not too long ago, that talked about Christian singles and the number one temptation that Christian singles face today, that according to this survey, 90% of Christian singles said their number one temptation is sexual sin. I mean, that's the greatest temptation. One person commented on the study saying, well, at least we know what the other 10% struggle with, lying for sure. Um, But when life isn't going as planned, And disappointment is just all over you. I mean, we have a tendency, every single one of us, to justify disobedience. And it's not just for those who are single. I mean, a friend of mine says it like this, you know, the only thing worse than being disappointed and single is being disappointed and married. Or or the only thing worse than being alone is wishing that you were. And I'm just saying the more that I talk to people, the more that I get to know people, the more I discover that there are so many marriages in such a critical, kind of fragile sort of of shape today where the wife doesn't feel loved or he doesn't feel respected. Uh, She doesn't feel like that he's ever fully present or listens or appreciate what she does. Uh, He's married to a woman where she makes sex and intimacy sound like a chore, something that only newlyweds do. You know, when needs aren't being met and husbands and wives aren't on the same page, I mean, I think we can all see how quickly disappointment sets in. And so before you know it, he's justifying a website or a lunch with someone from work, and she's got a new friendship on Facebook with an old fling from college. And so just even how slowly disappointment can give way to disobedience. Joseph's life wasn't going as planned either. I don't think he ever dreamt up this one. I thought, you know what? Here's what I wish for, to be sold as a slave to a foreign country. But he was faithful even in the disappointment. And so Joseph says to Potiphar's wife, how could I do such a thing to my God when he could have said, how could God let this happen to me? I mean, people think that I'm dead. I'll never see my family again. I'll never marry. You know what? I'm going to do something for myself once and for all. But he doesn't. He's just faithful even in the disappointment. Well, this tension between Joseph and Potiphar's wife uh, escalates. Uh, She's relentless. And so one day she embraces him and won't let go. And the text says that he was so trapped, that Joseph was so trapped by her that he literally slipped out of his robe in order to get away from her. And so she's angry. All right. She doesn't like to be rejected. And so she screams rape or something similar. And security comes rushing in and she's got proof. I mean, it's Joseph's robe. And as a result, Joseph is arrested and Potiphar has Joseph uh, thrown into prison. And if I could for just a moment, here's what's interesting about that to me. Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard, meaning he was also the chief executioner at the time. I mean, executing people was kind of probably sort of a hobby for him. And, And so I just have to ask, I mean, what prevented him from killing Joseph? I mean, you'd think his wife. I sort of got a hunch that he never really believed his wife's story that she wasn't very respectable, maybe had told stories like this before, or that he thought so much of Joseph he just couldn't imagine doing away with him. But regardless, he threw Joseph in prison where Joseph would spend the next 13 years. Now just just think about that for a second. If you were even alive, do you know what you were doing 13 years ago? That's That's a long time. I mean, have you ever had a bad day? or a bad week or month? Uh, Have you ever gone through a really difficult year with your business or something? 13 years. 
I mean, that's a really long time. And what did Joseph do to deserve this? Nothing. I mean, in fact, what makes this story extraordinary is that the Bible is full of stories of people who made bad decisions and how those bad decisions led to great consequences and disappointment. I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve sinned when they took the fruit, but they made the choice. You know, Abraham and Sarah sinned when they involved Hagar. But again, a choice. Each couple made poor decisions, decisions with consequences we still endure today, but not the case with Joseph. He didn't sin. He didn't disobey. He didn't rebel. He was just born. Like that's all he did. And yet his story is full of letdown and disappointment. I mean, he was the victim of someone else's choices. And how do you make sense of something like that? I mean, here's a question, and think about this. I mean, can you, can you still find God in the middle of disappointment like that? I mean, Joseph's going to spend the next 13 years of his life in prison. And where do you find God in that? Or try this on. Where do you find God in, you know, when you hear about a, a young mom that's battling cancer? Where do you find God in that? Or, or when you hear about a baby that dies shortly after it's born? I mean, where's God in that? Or, or when you hear about a husband whose wife just picked up and left one day? I mean, can you find God in that? Or you hear about a high school girl who's wrapped up into drugs and then you find out that she's been molested at home for years? I mean... Can you find God in that? Or, or if you're taking care of a chronically ill child right now in your house, where's God in that? I mean, is it possible to find a faithful God in the middle of your disappointment? Look over at uh, Genesis 39. Here's what you find. Um, I, I think a couple of a couple of important reminders that are so easy to race over. And if you're following along in the story, it's on page 31. Uh, it's kind of in the first third of the page. But Genesis 39.2, well, just hear it for yourself. It says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And so even as a slave living in a foreign land, living in his master's house, in all of the good, the Lord was with Joseph. He was responsible for it. Now look over a few more verses to verse 23. It's over on page 32, right in the middle of the page. Joseph is in prison now, and it says, The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Inside of the prison and outside of the prison, the Lord was with Joseph. It may not seem like it, but he's there. He's writing this story. Um, in his book, another book, um, psychologist Larry Crabb, uh, it's a book called The Pressure's Off. Uh, Larry Crabb uses a story from his childhood to illustrate a faithful God even during difficult times and, and, and just really asks the question of what does it mean that the creator of the universe of this world is with us uh, in our most disappointing season and, uh, or seasons? And let me, let me just read a little bit, a selection for you from this book. He writes, One Saturday afternoon, I decided I was a big boy and could use the bathroom without anyone's help. So I climbed the stairs, closed and locked the door behind me, and for the next few minutes felt very self-sufficient. Then it was time to leave. I couldn't unlock the door. I tried with every ounce of my three-year-old strength, but I couldn't do it. I remember panicking. I felt again like a very little boy as the thought went through my head, I might spend the rest of my life in the bathroom. My parents and likely the neighbors heard my desperate scream. 
Are you okay? Mother shouted through the door. She couldn't open from the outside. Did you fall? Have you hit your head? I can't unlock the door, I yelled. Get me out of here. I wasn't aware of it right then, but like any good dad, my dad raced down the stairs, ran to the garage to find a ladder, hauled it off the hooks, and leaned it against the side of the house just beneath the bathroom window. With adult strength, he pried it open, then climbed into my prison, walked past me, and with that same strength, turned the lock and opened the door. Thanks, Dad, I said, and I remember running out to play. Then he continues. That's how I thought the Christian life was supposed to work. When I get stuck in a tight place, I should do all I can to free myself. When I can't, I should pray. Then God shows up. He hears my cry, get me out of here, I want to play, and unlocks the door to the blessings I desire. Sometimes he does. But now, no longer three years old and approaching 60, I'm realizing the Christian life doesn't work that way. And I wonder, are any of us simply content with God? I mean, do we even like him when he doesn't open the door we, must, we most want opened? I mean, when a marriage doesn't heal, when rebellious kids still rebel, when friends betray, when financial reverses threaten our comfortable way of life, when the prospect of terrorism loons, when health worsens despite much prayer, when loneliness intensifies and depression deepens, when ministries die. God has climbed through the small window into my dark room, but he doesn't walk by me to turn the lock that I couldn't budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor and says, come sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play. I don't always see it that way. Get me out of here, I scream. If you love me, unlock the door. And then here's the big finish. This is key. Dear friend, the choice is ours, he writes. Either we can keep asking him to give us what we think will make us happy, to escape our dark room and run to the playground of blessings, or we can accept his invitation to sit with him, for now perhaps in darkness, and to seize the opportunity to know him better and represent him well in this difficult world. If you're caught, or overwhelmed by a lot of disappointment in your life today, if you've got a prison of your own, I just want you to see that you're never alone. I mean, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I mean, it doesn't matter what comes your way, you can have this confidence that you are never alone. David said it like this in Psalm 23, verse 4, and, and he was facing some frightening days and even fearing for his life. He writes, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Over in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30, Jesus invites us, even in our disappointment, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And he says, and you will find rest for your souls. And then back again in the Old Testament in Psalm 34, David, when he was on the verge of losing all of his hope and maybe even his sanity, he writes, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. And then finally, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is close. I mean, He's never far. And I know that that doesn't answer all of the questions, even about some of the circumstances that make up your prison today, but just know this, that you are not alone. 
Like you don't have to do life alone. I mean, Joseph was never alone. And I guess my hope is that maybe even the reminder or the reality of the presence in your life today might just make all of the difference even in your disappointment. And so the story of Joseph continues in prison. And just as Joseph did under Potiphar's watch, uh, he shined. Uh, The warden saw the potential in him and put him in charge of the entire prison. And remember, and here's how it kind of went. I mean, remember how Joseph had this history with dreams and all, and God had given him this specific ability to interpret these dreams. Well, through a series of crazy events, one day came about when Joseph was given the opportunity to interpret a dream for this little over-anxious pharaoh. And and the ruler of Egypt was just satisfied, and he was comforted by Joseph's response. How we see it in Genesis 41:39. It says, Then the Pharaoh said to Joseph, after he interpreted this dream, he says, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as wise and as discerning, or discerning and as wise as you. He says, You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders, and only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And so what did Pharaoh do? He made him the VP. I mean, he's second in charge, the grand vizier or the overseer of the royal estates uh, for Egypt. He he basically put him in charge of all of Egypt. And so one day Joseph wakes up in Egypt in in prison eating rice and beans. But tonight he's going to fall asleep, the second most powerful man in the world. Now, you might hear something like that. And whether it's the first time or maybe you've heard it a number of times and wonder to yourself, okay, how in the world does something like that happen? God's the author of the story. I mean, it's his story. I mean, it's the same God who chose one man and Noah and his family and put them on a boat. I mean, it's the same God that chose an elderly couple and through that elderly couple, you know, populated a nation. I mean, it's the same God that that is going to rescue his chosen nation through a slave, a slave by the name of Joseph. I mean, over and over again, our God has never been afraid to use the least likely people to get his plans, his will done in this world. That's just what he does. And that's exactly what happened. And one day, Joseph's brothers, uh, well, as you read the chapter, all right, and uh, if you haven't if you've have read this chapter before, and maybe you read it this week or something, uh, one thing that you're going to see is how um, God is going to use Joseph to carry out this plan to save millions in Egypt, millions from a severe seven-year famine. Uh, but the famine didn't just affect Egypt, but Canaan too. And who lives in Canaan? Joseph's family. And so who's going to make the trip to Egypt looking for food and resources? Yeah. It's Joseph's brothers. And so that's exactly what happened. And one day, Joseph's brothers appear on the scene in Egypt looking for food. 22 years have passed since they sold their brother into slavery. Joseph was about 17 then, so he's about 39 now. And the brothers end up in Joseph's chambers. I mean, they're standing face to face with their brother, but the irony is that they don't recognize him. I mean, they thought he was dead. And Joseph knows who they are. And do you know what his brothers ended up doing? Bowing to him. Just as God had revealed to him in a dream so many years before. And it's a long story, and and I'm going to shorten it quite a bit for you. But basically, Joseph put his brothers through a bunch of tests to make sure that they had changed, that they were really sorry for what they had done so many years before. Again, they didn't know this man was their brother, but he's got a lot of power. And one day, Joseph couldn't take it any longer. Picking it up in Genesis 45. Let me just kind of show you briefly the rest of the story. It says, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. 
Joseph said to his brothers, hey, I'm Joseph, surprise, Uh, is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And I don't miss this. Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Here's what Joseph's saying. He's saying, hey, I'm not going to pretend like I get it all. But God had a plan. And everything in my life and in everything in your life, it's, it's all a part of God's story. I mean, that's, that's maturity. That's a lot of character. And then over in Genesis 50, verse 20, he said to them, you know, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph said God intended it for good. And that doesn't mean that God caused the brothers to sin. It doesn't mean that he was behind Potiphar's wife and her lust. I mean, he didn't cause all of these bad things, but God was able to take all of the poor decisions and all of the broken pieces in and around Joseph's life and redeem them. I mean, it's like God in all of his sovereignty was able to look ahead to this particular situation and see all that was going to happen and say, you know what, I could use that. I can take that and I can use it for my glory in this world. God can do that. He can take anything. He can take any life, any circumstance, and use it for its glory, His glory. I mean, it's never too messed up. It's never too complicated. I mean, the prognosis is never so bad. A marriage is never so far beyond repair. There is no addiction that is so steep. There is no record so destructive. There is no situation that is too helpless for our God. And the Apostle Paul reminds us, of his faithfulness and his goodness and of this hope in Romans 8:28 when he says and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose he says in all things our God works that means in the bad things in the big things and in the small things God is in each of these He's in the exciting things and in the disappointing things. I mean, this is the promise, the confidence that we can have. We can know that God is with us and that he is always working for the good, no matter it is what we might face. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now and maybe some even really hopeless, feeling helpless, hurting, with a lot of pain, a lot of questions, a lot of frustration, a lot of confusion. And and humbly, maybe we're just able to say that you are the author of the story and the great redeemer of all things. God, we do everything we can to put our faith in you today. Would you give us the faith to believe? And even as we've studied the story of Joseph, um, I know that everyone here in some way or another can relate to the disappointment, you know, when things don't turn out like we'd hoped. God, today, would you help us see the story that you're writing 
And would you remind us today that you are with us and give us the confidence of knowing that in all things you are always working for the good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.